Fintech is a powerful force, making many industries and end markets more efficient and creating growth opportunities for companies exploiting that white space. Today on the Financial Operating Base, we'll speak with Barkley Keith, Army veteran and founder of Artis, a digital point of need lending and payments platform. Welcome to the Financial Operating Base, a podcast and community to help you, the veteran entrepreneur, to navigate the terrain and accomplish your mission of business success. Joining us today, we have Barkley Keith, the founder and CEO of Artist Technologies. Barkley, thanks for joining us today. Hey, guys. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Hey, well, let's jump right in. Why don't you tell us about your time in the military and uh, how you got into the business world? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually joined the military at 17, right out of high school, ended up starting out kind of in the medical field, ultimately migrating into something called biomedical engineering. Ultimately, what we do is set up hospitals, uh, be it super remotely or stateside or wherever, and ensure they run and, and actually operate efficiently. So I was very early deployment to Afghanistan, uh, got the opportunity to kind of serve for six years, left as an E6, and kind of, you know, I'd say that definitely shaped my business and future career, you know, wholly just kind of the work ethic, the values, the experiences, everything that rolls into that. And tell us a little bit about why you picked that as a field within the military. Um, what interested you uh, in that? Did you think that that would potentially lead to your future career? Um, yeah, because absolutely. you're a little bit different from that now. Definitely. So, you know, I originally thought I wanted to be a doctor. Like so many people kind of started out, I wanted to do something in the medical field and figure it'd be a good opportunity really to get exposure directly to kind of some of the um, emergency medicine type aspects that I was attracted to. Um, and ultimately, it did give me the kind of the deep experience of working in the hospital and it helped me to understand how much I hated working in the hospital, which was super valuable, as you can imagine. <laughs> um yeah, and, and, you know, so certainly both a uh, military to civilian transition uh, as well as a career transition. Um, so why don't you tell us about that? Why don't you tell us uh, what it was like when you first left the military and, and how you eventually gravitated into uh, the technology field? Yeah, absolutely. So when I left the military, I kind of did one of those things where I jump online and I'm like, all right, who makes the most money? I want to do that, which, as you can imagine, was a massive failure. I started out kind of heading down the road of wanting to go into finance. I actually did pretty well at it, got an undergrad, you got to use the GI Bill, uh, and ended up ultimately going to Bloomberg in New York where I got the bug and kind of the taste in my mouth for the technology aspect. Um, for me, the true attraction was the massive amount of data that flows in on the financial markets and just the never-ending change you see in the macro kind of economic environment, right? It's pretty unpredictable, it's very hard to master, um, I think it's one of those things that it will forever keep you mentally engaged. And so that was my initial attraction. So after a couple of years at Bloomberg, as I was finishing up a master's in finance as well, I ended up moving to a startup hedge fund where I was a second employee. Um, so things were going really well, but ultimately for me, again, coming from the military where you have a massive impact and you know, you wake up every day, maybe you have a hurry up and wait sometimes, but you do have those opportunities to really impact kind of people's lives. 
the hedge fund was really hard, right? Because for me, I was just managing rich people's money where there was no major impact, right? If I make you 20% or if I lose 50%, you're a multimillionaire, that, that, that has zero impact on you. So ultimately, I found myself in a position where I was kind of questioning, you know, what I was wanting to do. And as I was getting out, I was like, this is the pinnacle. The hedge fund world is where I want to be. You know, I'd gotten there and this deep pitted, unfulfilling feeling had kind of come over me. And I was kind of trying to figure out, all right, what's next? I know this is not it. I thought this is what I wanted to do, but it's clearly not. And that's when I ultimately kind of started programming a little bit and dabbling around with coding. Um, ultimately, that started the addiction. I like the joke that, um, you know, Python is kind of the gateway drug of coding. You start writing Python, next thing you know, you're on to JavaScript and a SQL and 14 other languages. But it kind of turned into that. You know, over the next few years, I moved to a private equity turnaround where I had P&L experience. But while I was there, I ended up automating a ton of stuff using that Python and really falling in love with it. So mixing the coding with my, you know, deep data background it made for a pretty interesting skill set. And so as I was wrapping up kind of the private equity turnaround, I looked at Green Sky Credit, which is a local Atlanta company. They had kind of a director of analytic position that was really responsible for figuring out the white space problems. Now, when I say the white space problems, I'm kind of describing the problem they had, which was their portfolio is growing at a, you know, a, a very, very large rate into perpetuity with very few ways of pricing it. And so we were trying to use very abstract models, tons of data, do anything we could to try and predict this. Well, ultimately, I would say that's really where I kind of got into consumer credit and started to get my mind around writing credit policies, the massive impact you can have by targeting certain financial technologies, and then also kind of the structural shift of embedded technology was first introduced to me there. Um, at Green Sky, I saw a company that was growing gangbusters, but was kind of having you know, challenges from the inside that stemmed from the value of the leaders and their own values. You know, some of the things we get from the military as leaders, we take care of our people. You know, we make sure we get the job done. It's not really time-based. And I think you know, taking care of our people is always at the forefront. And that's one of the things I saw there as you know, the company was IPOing, I saw a whole bunch of unhappy happy people because no one was taken care of. Benefits were bad and only a few at the top were really benefiting from the structure and the technology. And so that was kind of the catalyst. I said to myself, you know, this technology is something that I feel like I can make substantially better. I think they're on the right trend being that they're offering that point of need financing. And that's what kind of led into artist technologies is my interest in building a company that had good values and a really, really standout technical product. That's a really interesting point you bring up. I, I think a lot of veterans that may be transitioning and thinking about careers, um, they think about coding or, or some sort of technology skills um, certainly is essential for the future economy. Um, at the same time, leadership's one of the things we all learn about in the military from all different levels. Um, and then, you know, your personal interest in finance. So it's almost like you brought the three of them together at one point to now start the business which you have. Yeah, I would say it was definitely kind of a, you know, a whirlwind of skills that just so happened to luckily all get developed um, kind of alongside each other. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was necessary to necessarily deliberate more, 
more me trying to find where I was actually mentally stimulated and happy. You know, I think that's, that's something that veterans underrate. They, they come out, they're like, Hey, I want to make a, make a bunch of money or I want to do X, Y, or Z. The ability to have an impact and actually be mentally stimulated, I think should be one of the first priorities a veteran comes out and tries to figure out. Okay. Taking a half a step back. Cause um, I, I think we meet a lot of younger veterans or older veterans and they say, I want to be in business for myself. I want to be an entrepreneur, but they don't necessarily have that uh, original idea or that spark of inspiration um, that says, this is exactly the problem I'm trying to solve. This is what I want to build a company around. How how did you discover the problem in the marketplace? And what was your motivation for turning that into a business? Yeah, absolutely. The most impactful thing around that for me was working in the industry for a few years. And I think most entrepreneurs miss this step because you know, I can tell you, I didn't learn it in school. No other entrepreneur ever told me this, but the, the biggest thing I benefited from was actually going into the industry. I'm now building a business in and spending a few years learning the industry. Um, a few reasons behind that, you know, you meet other people who have deep experience in the industry. So you're starting to fill the talent pool. You're ultimately going to want to leverage when you start your company, you're going to be able to identify gaps, you know, just in the core product and in your normal day-to-day operations. Because again, you're going to be deep in this industry, eight hours a day for, you know, potentially two to three years. And then you're also really going to be able to key in on those challenges the industry faces because you're living them and breathing them every day. And so that for me really helped to be the catalyst behind launching this. I was able to spend a few years in the industry, confirm both my thesis as well as some of the challenges I was seeing and then really key on them prior to, to really launching. How do you know when you know enough, I, you know, I think, you know, veterans are certainly good at having a very steep learning curve and maybe that first corporate job um, exposes them to business and, and they start to get a wider sense of what's going on in the economy and in certain industries, but, but to take the leap and then finally start your own business, how do you know when you know enough or what gave you the confidence to, to go out and start from square one? Yeah, I still fight with imposter syndrome every day. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. I don't think it's one of those things that you just wake up and know. You one day wake up and say, I'm either fed up enough with what I'm doing now or I simply can't spend another day wasting my time for someone else knowing that I could be doing this, right? I was waking up every morning realizing I was going to be going to spend eight to 10 hours a day working for someone who I just wasn't motivated by on a mission that I was, again, no longer motivated by. So for me, I think the catalyst was what I want to do with my life. Am I truly living every day to its fullest? And what does that look like? Well, what that looked like for me was taking the leap and going into an industry that I felt like I knew very well, attracting the type of folks that I felt like could build the business and the product and then pursuing it. But yeah, don't, don't let me under, under, emphasize that, you know, every day as CEO of a startup, I still wake up like, is this the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? Like, yes, it is. This is the right thing. But you know, it's, I would say the responsibility and the load that's on your shoulders is exponentially larger than when you're an employee. Understood. Hey, so tell us, you've made the leap. So tell us about artist technologies. Tell us um, what issues you guys are addressing in the marketplace. And then tell us a little bit about, you know, both the challenges and the triumphs Um, you've hit along the road so far. Yeah, absolutely. So Artist Technologies offers an embedded technology platform that enables digital financial services, so that's loans and payments, at the consumer's point of need. 
So ultimately our goal is to embed loans and real-time payments, again, with real-time decisionings at the time when you actually need it. If you look at how a lot of financial services are delivered today, it's consumer direct where you know, you'll get home at five o'clock in the afternoon, you'll open your mailbox and there's five offers for loans. We think that that for one is putting a whole bunch of your information in a very secure state, i.e. someone comes, rips off your mail, they have all of your information in a pre-filled loan form. And we think timing wise, when you're getting home to see your family, that's not the time we should be offering you a loan. Now in Georgia, middle of summer, it's 95 degrees, your HVAC unit goes out, that's the time we should be offering you a loan. So we enable that HVAC merchant to access the technology to be able to offer you a loan right there when he's standing there looking at your HVAC unit, telling you it's broken and that it's gonna cost you 10 grand to get it fixed. Okay, so what you're doing, if I am following you correctly, is um, maybe it's in that emergency situation or maybe it's at some large credit-based point of decision, you're able to help the merchant or the service company deliver that credit to the consumer on the spot that helps facilitate the transaction. Yeah, you got it. We put an automated decisioning platform um, as well as banks on the backside. So we're able to align everything that merchant needs to embed the form and then the decisions offers and ultimately the loan itself to that consumer. Um, we actually get both sides of the chain on the lender side. You know, we're able to help them with originations through those merchants. The merchants are a great first level of fraud defense, as you can imagine, having that merchant in the middle where they're standing, you know, right next to you with that HVAC unit, C unit, obviously deters quite a bit of fraud. And then we're also able to allow them to automate a lot of the portfolio analytics on the backside as well. Okay, and you use the HVAC technician uh, for the emergency repair as your example. Um, what are some of the end markets you're addressing now and what are some of the other um, end markets that get you excited to go after as you continue to grow the business? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, home improvement for us is kind of the, the low hanging fruit and there's a ton of volume and we're able to really get there very quickly. We know the space well. We also think about lifestyle e-commerce and healthcare is very attractive markets. You know, anywhere where you've got an individual who's spending a few thousand dollars and may have a couple hundred dollars of add-ons, that would be the ideal place to weave this in. Um, you know, outside of emergency situations, you know, our goal is to enable that merchant as well as that lender to really originate at the time when they should be versus now, which is just a shotgun effect. Now, unfortunately, what happens if it is 95 degrees and um, I need to get my HVAC repaired? Um, is, is one company looking at my credit or credit worthiness or is there a host of companies? What's, what's my likelihood of um, being able to take advantage of the fact that the service provider is using your platform and I have the ability to get credit? Is, yeah. is this something I should view as um, sort of under distress and, and I take what I get or, or is there really an opportunity for me to get a good deal as well? Yeah, this is a great opportunity to get a great deal. You know, we offer a full spectrum, seamless second look, look process, which means if you're anything from, you know, excellent credit quality all the way down to sub 550 stuff, you're going to be getting an offer. And we also offer same as cash loans. So that structure for your 800 to 850 FICO, your excellent credit type folks, we offer the structures that are able to attract them as well. Um, so our deep industry experience allows us to package that and help 
lenders understand how are they, how are they really able to care or to capture that super prime market? Um, if you, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah. So if you look at a lot of the volume coming in from some of our competitors, um, you know, upward of 80% is coming from that uh, prime to super prime market. So I think, yeah, we have a very wide product um, offering for full spectrum lending. So we think that's very important from the merchant and consumer's point of view. Okay, and can, can you maybe speak to, it sounds like it's a, a lot of integration on your part. You're bringing in financial institutions, you're bringing in um, service companies that wanna use, use your business. Um, I mean, how difficult was this all to get going and, and what were some of the challenges you had along the way? Yes, it is very complex and it does span the whole value stream. So I think from the start, we knew we were biting off quite a bit. Um, you know, we cover everything from the security and fraud on the front end all the way to security or the servicing collections, accounting and reporting and data analytics on the back end. We've done a lot to automate every step in between. And so I think for one, finding talent, you know, we're in a sub 4% um, unemployment rate economy. We're in Atlanta where fintech talent is under high demand anyway for the skill sets we're looking for. So finding the talent that can build those engines and then the UI UX and that really good user experience is always gonna be a challenge for an entrepreneur. Um, not only do you have the cash flow problem, but you have the credibility problem of, I'm asking you, Mr. Dev, who has tons of offers to come work at my company that has no revenue and, or anything else. So the challenges for us have been everything from kind of hiring to the bank sales cycle being extremely long on one side of it to vendors. I mean, there's a whole bunch of vendors that you don't actually see on the front end, but we literally have, you know, 10 to 12 vendors on the back end for everything from data to servicing and collections to payment processing to real time payments. All of that is vendor integrations and things like that. You know, our goal and how this platform is designed is it's all interchangeable API based modules. Um, we did all the hard work of integrating so the banks and the lenders are able to integrate very easily. Um, for that banker lender to offset their legacy technology, it's as simple as tying into one of our APIs or we can even drop batch files. But that was the integration we were really worried about cleaning up and so we did all the hard work on our end. You bring up a really interesting point. Um, there's a lot of moving parts here and I think uh, with entrepreneurs, um, thinking about being in business, um, at least with me, um, I was always taught, do the business where you're value added and outsource the business where other people can be value added. How do you manage the work that artist does versus the work that you rely on third party or outsource vendors to do? And how do you bring that together to be seamless to the, to the customers at the end of the day? Yeah, part of that is dictated by the regulatory environment, just to be very straightforward. Some of the things and activities we simply can't do because we don't want to be regulated as a funder. Um, and so, for example, servicing and collections, it's a really easy decision that we have to outsource that uh, to include, you know, being a separate company that exists for servicing and collections because of the fact that, again, we don't want to be a funder. So I think regulatory pressures will dictate how we outsource some of this. Um, other are key technology components that we want to ensure we own. Any of the decisioning engines, um, those are all things that we know we have to develop in-house and own because, again, the proprietary value behind that isn't necessarily a copyright or some sort of IP. It's the knowledge um, because that individual who built that decision engine could literally go and build it again. He's not using your code. It all comes from 
his previous knowledge of building decision engines. So things like that, if it's technology or technologically important strategically, we'll bring it in house um, as well. And then the last thing is the pieces that kind of tie everything else together. So your orchestrators, your accounting and reporting and data analytics, you know, all of that stuff is necessary bolt-ons to make it a functional platform. So I think those again are kind of an easy decision if we have to develop it in-house. Okay. Um, let, let's take a half a step away from the, the sort of technical details for a minute. And, and you had mentioned maybe seeing uh, examples of poor leadership or, or poor ways to run an organization and take care of its people um, that you saw previously in your career. Um, what are some of the things that you're doing, whether it's something you learned in the military or something you've learned along the way, um, that you think makes artists a really compelling company that people want to be a part of and work with. Yeah, absolutely. The culture. Uh, I'd say being an NCO and, you know, I, I'm sure every enlisted guy who was ever, ever an NCO remembers the non-commissioned officers creed. They remember it saying 500 times and how much they hated it when they were repeating that. Now I see why they made us repeat it so many times it's burned into our brain because that actually has infused our culture, right? We take care of our people. We have really good health benefits. We volunteer one day a quarter. Um, the things that most companies are now taking for granted, we've integrated very early on as a startup. So we are able to attract the talent that can build the decision engines. We are able to attract those software engineers that are really good. Because again, I think taking care of our people is at the core of this company. And we've been very deliberate about the culture from day one. And so that's something I think entrepreneurs need to think about, right? If you're going to start a startup, what is that culture going to be and how are you going to define it? Because day one, you got to start living it. That's so true. So you have a problem you need to solve in the marketplace. You need to figure out how to have a culture to build a team to go out and get it. And then after that, it's execution. So speak a little bit about execution. What do you do as the CEO of the company day to day? You know, think about maybe some of the entrepreneurs or wannabe entrepreneurs that are listening to the call, what really do you do every day versus what do you have your trusted lieutenants do versus, you know, what do you maybe have a couple of other layers below you doing? Speak, speak to how Barkley spends his day and makes an impact in the, in the business. Yeah, I think you hit on something really, really important. And that's the trusted lieutenant thing. So before I speak of anything else, finding trusted lieutenants is one of the most important thing because you can't be a hundred places at once. And, you know, as CEO, you will instantly be spread thin. So finding people you trust and are competent and can execute and get the job done should be your number one goal as soon as you are looking for folks to hire. Figure your first, you know, five, 10 hires should all people be people who are competent enough to execute without you there. You know, how do you measure that? How do you monetize that? I think that's something you kind of got to figure out. But one of the, just to wrap it back to an earlier point, one of the big benefits of working in the industry for a few years before I even started this company was I already knew those people. I had already worked with those people. And so those trusted lieutenants were folks that I had known for a few years and they were easily able to step in. And that really for us helped us ramp so quickly. Um, so finding trusted lieutenants earlier, you know, I can't, I can't recommend that strongly enough. Um, but how do I delegate? I think, you know, I look at the value add activities, what's strategically important that generally will stay on my plate. If it's something that's vendor related or something that can be delegated, I will delegate it as soon as possible. For me, it's about delegating as much as I can to those trusted lieutenants because I know they'll get the job done. That's great stuff. Um, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, more philosophy. Do you have sort of a quote or a saying 
um, NCO Creed. Um, <laughs> that's that 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 sticks in your head. That that sort of guides you every day, um, either from a culture or leadership standpoint. Yeah. So I actually have something from one of my wrestling coaches from when I was in high school. Um, you know, wrestling in high school was one of the first really hard things I did in life that really pushed my body to the limit. And he used to say, it's the little things that make you big. And, you know, there's a lot of truth behind that. It's paying attention to the details and it's executing on the little things that ensure you can execute on the big things, right? Because if you're not able to execute on the little things, that's everything from following up with people to actually attending to those networking events to making sure you have decent content up, right? It's attention to detail. But that statement has gone a long way. And I repeat that to myself fairly often, right? It's a little little things that make you big. So make sure you're actually executing on the little things. Those are great words. Hey, let's, let's look to the future. Um, we're obviously enjoying this conversation today. If we came back to you in a year or two years or even five years, um, how would you define whether or not you were successful? Yeah. You know, for us, it's about building a really good technical product that our consumers love and our consumers in this case are both the lenders and the merchants. So what does success look like for us? I think, You'll, you will see financial services being delivered fundamentally differently than how they are now. You know, you'll, you'll see less mailbox loan applications and you'll see more real-time loan applications that are actually at the point of need. You know, I'd love for you to be able to walk into a merchant store where you're already approved for that loan before you even need it. You know, if you think about some of the data sources out there from Google, Apple, some of the technology folks, you know, they have such amazing data that individuals could be underwritten based on activity alone. And so your traditional FICO models, things like that, don't become nearly as relevant. So I think in the next five years, you're seeing AI-based lending and AI-based decisioning infused throughout the spectrum. You're seeing embedded real-time lending becoming much more prolific and real-time payments are just kind of a basic bolt-on must-have that are essentially table stakes for most lenders and bankers, period. As a consumer, should I, should I welcome this? Should I fear this? Um, is my privacy being invaded? Do, does the banks know too much about me um, because of this area? Um, as a consumer, how should I interpret this change in technology I'm going to experience over the next five or 10 years? Yeah, as a consumer, you should be really excited. I mean, you'll be able to both get that loan real time and make that payment real time. You'll have access to a wide plethora of options versus just what that single bank you normally work with or lender normally you normally work with offers. So your options will go up, your costs will go down, and everything will be you know fairly close to real time compared to now where it's multiple days. Okay, so um, faster and, and hopefully cheaper to me. Yeah, faster and cheaper. We see this as a structural shift of the way we transact and do business. That's excellent. Um, again, I'm Joe Sroka. Barkley, I've known you for a while. You're one of the great uh, military veteran entrepreneurs here in our home city of Atlanta. And we think what you're doing at Artist Technologies is fantastic. Um, if some of the listeners want to get in touch with you, um, either for professional reasons or, or just to pick your brain a little bit about entrepreneurship, um, how can they get in touch with you? Sure. LinkedIn's great. You can also email me at bkeith, K-E-I-T-H, at heyartist.com. That's H-E-Y-A-R-T-I-S dot com. Barkley, it was great having you on the financial operating base today. We wish you all the luck in the future, and we look forward to speaking to you again. Hey, thanks a lot, Joe.
We will leave you today with a quote from Albert Einstein. You can't solve a problem on the same level that it was created. You have to rise above it to the next level. Thanks for joining us on the Financial Operating Base podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so send us your questions or feedback to financialoperatingbase at gmail.com.